Good morning, City Light. My name is Joe. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, Today we're going to end our series in the book of Exodus, and we're going to end it uh, by talking about the golden calf. By talking about the idol, I heard, uh uh-oh, you're right, it is uh uh-oh, this is not, we're buckle in, no. Uh, But yeah, we're talking about the golden calf. So, So last week we saw Israel really kind of on a mountaintop experience. Uh, they'd just been given the law, which was really their, their purpose, like this is how you are to live, this is your purpose moving forward as God's people, and they affirm their faith and their obedience to God. And now this week, just a few, uh, a little time later, we're going to see Israel kind of doing the opposite. We're going to see Israel make a small God out of their own hands and worship it. Out of fear and anxiety... They're going to make something with their hands that ends up leading to their downfall. We will see Israel, likely out of fear, make an absolute mess. They try to make a God while waiting for God. And I wonder, City Light, today, out of impatience and anxiety or fear or pride, do you ever make things in your life that take the place of God? Do you ever find yourself valuing something in your heart other than Christ? Do you ever find yourself making decisions based not on what God's will is for your life, but on what maybe makes you feel good or look good or makes you comfortable? And many times these are subtle steps, right? Many times it's, it, it looks like, oh, you know, I just, I, I, I praise God a little less, or oh, you know, I'm just, I'm praying a little less, or I'm, I'm reading my Bible a little less, I'm, I'm thinking of, of God a little bit less, and then all of a sudden we look up and, 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 and we've done this with God and we've replaced him with something, right? Sometimes when we become impatient or anxious or fearful or prideful, kind of like the Israelites in the story today, we, we make our own little gods to worship. We make small, powerless idols to lead our lives instead of the one true and powerful God. So let's go ahead and jump in. If you would open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 to 6, that's where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning, and I'm going to read to you. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So just so we're clear, the last words that we actually hear 
come from the nation of Israel was a few chapters before this in chapter 24. Let me read them to you and see if you can contrast what's going on here. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. They had just gotten the law. In that law was the second commandment, which we see them breaking right here. We see they have made an image and worshiped it, breaking the commandment. They've gone from, yes, Lord, we are yours, you are ours, we'll do everything that you say, yes, Lord, to a few weeks later going, well, I mean, we haven't seen Moses in a while. I got an idea, let's make a calf, let's worship that, <laughs> right? They, they, they get impatient, they say, yes, God, we will, and then, ah, mm, I don't know, and... um. I think we can probably relate to this a little bit. I know at least I can. In fact, just last night, um, I was bartering with God a little bit. My son would not go to sleep. Anyone else in that boat with me? Yeah. Uh, so he wouldn't go to sleep. And, and, and of course, I'm very holy, and, and, and I want to do holy things after he goes to bed. And I'm like, dear Jesus, if this child would just go to bed, I would have time to pray for everyone that walks through this door today. I'd have time to read my Bible and make sure that everything that I communicate today is of your word. Lord, just let him go to bed. And I'm bartering with God a little bit. Elliot finally goes to bed, and, and, and I go downstairs, and I'm like, I better check on the Husker game. <laughs> right? Right? You're laughing, but I also see you do this. Yeah, you're, on the, you're, on, you're, you're under trial now. Okay, so Sunday morning, I do see you do this. You're like, yes, Lord, you calm the raging sea in my heart. You are all I need, and then you go out in the parking lot, right? Yeah, this parking lot out here. You're dragging your kids. You're like, come on, Village Inn fills up in like 10 minutes. We got to get out of here. You cut off like seven people. I watch you. You almost hit elderly couples crossing the way, Right? Where you're just saying, oh, Jesus, you calm the raging storm. Yeah, he didn't calm the raging storm that morning. He, that's for sure. But we all do this, right? We all do this. We can all relate, I think, to where Israel is uh, this morning in, in, our, in our story. Uh, but let's, let's look a little closer. Let's listen to some of the things that the Israelites are saying about this golden calf. They're saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And And if we remember back to last week, what's the first thing God said when he laid out his commandments? He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, right? So they're attributing to God now being represented by this calf. It's also saying that they're making offerings to the calf, which again, that's something that they usually only do to to the Lord. They're worshiping God with this representation that they made with their own hands. They're reducing their all-powerful God into something small that they can see, touch, feel, and manipulate. They're going from faithfulness and obedience to panic and rebellion in just a few short weeks. And I think if if we look, too, we we start to see some of the reasons that they felt like they needed to make this idol. Uh, Back in verse 1, we see that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Now, Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he's getting the instructions from God on how to build a tabernacle. And the tabernacle is important because that is how God dwells amongst his people. So so he's getting instructions on how God is actually going to dwell amongst the Israelites. So he doesn't have his feet up or, you know, on vacation or anything like that. But he's gone, and he's gone for 40 days. 
Um, and, and so while he's gone, um, I think the Israelites are starting to get nervous. And, and the reason for that is look at the language they use with Aaron. They say, up, make us gods who will go before us. Now, this is usually, again, a God who will go before you. That's language that, that Yahweh has used, is I will go before you. What he's telling them is I will lead you. And a lot of times that, that means uh, into and through a battle. He's going to protect them. They're going to be safe with God because he is going to go before them. So they're asking Aaron to make gods that will go before them. We see that they're nervous. Israel is scared at this point. They're in the wilderness They had just been recently attacked by a people, the Amalekites, and they're pretty sure that it's probably going to happen again very, very soon. So they feel vulnerable, and they want to take things into their own hands. And so they do. They make this tangible, shiny, visible God and decide, you know what? That's what we're going to worship. That's what we are going to follow. Their anxiety is leading them to worship something less than God, a poor image of God instead of the only one true God powerful, and trustworthy God. So the question is then, how is this relevant to us? Why does this matter to us? My guess is most of you have not gone to Borsheim's and said, you know what, can you make me like a big gold like cow thing? What, why do, I, I'm going to worship it, right? Like you probably, you probably haven't been there, but let's fast forward a few hundred pages in about 1,500 years to the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, and, and we're going to see Paul telling the Corinthian church about this story. And, and he has something to say about this story. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 7. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now skip down to verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages had come. And then down to verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Paul's basically saying that these things in the book of Exodus are there for our instruction, or another good word is for our warning. He's warning us here. He's basically saying that Israel had God. They had him. They saw him. They saw him move. They saw him work. And yet they still worshiped an idol. And yet they still went to worship a lesser God. And and Paul is saying this many, many years later because it's still relevant to that church and it's still relevant to us today. In our lives, have we not seen God move? Have we not seen him answer prayer? Have we not seen him rescue us? from our self-righteousness and from our rebellion? Have we not seen him rescue us from addictions? However, even though we've seen him, we've seen him work, our nature is not to remain faithful to God, but to orient our lives around smaller things. 
City Light, this isn't just a history lesson of what God's people were doing back then, but it's relevant to us. It's relevant to us today and something that we need to take heed of, we need to take warning of. So then the next question is, okay, Paul is saying, warning us of idolatry, what is it? What is an idol? What is idolatry? And usually when we think about it, we do think of big golden caps that people bow down to worship, but really, idolatry is simply reverence and devotion to something other than God. Anything we want, trust, or worship in front of God, it can be anything. And our idols today might look a lot different than the idols uh, that we see Israel crafting here, but they are just as real. They're just as dangerous. So then the question is, okay, now I know what an idol is. How do I tell if I have one? How do I tell if if I'm worshiping an idol or, or trusting in an idol? And I think we can ask ourselves some questions that sound a little bit like this. What can I not live without? What can I not live without? Where, where do I find my value? Whose opinion of me do I care about the absolute most? And then when we get into this if-then paradigm, and you guys have probably been here, right? If I have this, then things will be better. If I were to just have this, then I could start my life again. If I were to find that spouse, then things would be great. If I could get out of this apartment into a home, then things would be fantastic. If I could get out of this job I hate and into one I like, then I would be happy. If I could just be released from this addiction, if I could just stop this, then I could actually start my life, right? When we get into that if-then cycle, that's a good indicator that something in our heart is taking precedence over God, that we're trusting in something else other than our Savior. So let's jump back into the Exodus story with this lens, and I'm going to go over three different ways that we make idols, and then with that, kind of characteristics that idols carry. So the first one is we make small idols that have no power. We make small idols that have no power. Now let's take a little closer look at this idol that Israel made at this golden calf. Again, we see in verse 1 that the Israelites tell Aaron to make them gods who will go out before them. And then later we see the people say that these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Um, We also see Aaron telling the people that the next morning they're going to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. What Israel is doing here is not just chasing some weird random god. They are trying to represent Yahweh. In fact, that's the language that they use. When they say Lord, they're, saying that they're using the word Yahweh. They're trying to represent their God in something smaller. And so in all of this, they're making something that closely resembles God. In their eyes, this probably seems like a somewhat reasonable thing because that's what the Egyptians did. They had all of these things representing all these different gods. They're like, why can't we just do the same thing. But in reality, they're making a small version of the true God. They're making a version that they can handle. They're making a version that they can control. What they have is an impotent shadow of God, a powerless nothing. They're basically saying, God, you're too big. We can't always see you. We don't always know what we're doing. We're not quite sure how we feel about you leading and not us. 
So we're making this tangible thing that we can see and that we can worship to represent you. But this goes, like I said, against God's second commandment. God in his second commandment is basically saying, I will not be represented by something you make. You're not to make an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or under the earth or in the water. I will not be represented by something that you make. Anything that is made by human hands is going to glorify those hands instead of the God that made those hands. Anything that we make is going to fall woefully short of capturing even a sliver of the glory of God. And that's why he says, do not worship him with an image. It will be small. It'll be way too small. You will have no idea. So functionally, any idol that we make is going to be small, and it's going to be powerless. And so I wonder this week um, if, if some of these small and powerless idols have been revealed in our own hearts um, I'm going to catch you up on current events. There was a, a, a presidential election this week. I, you probably didn't know about it. You're welcome. It was Tuesday. I think CNN had something about it. Yeah. No, but really, this is a big deal, right? Like, like there's a lot of emotions out there, a lot of anger, a lot of confusion, a lot of uh, jubilation, really um, any type of emotion we've seen expressed through the news, through social media, um, and, and, and conversations that, that you've probably had this week. I know I have. My wife, Whitney, and I went to lunch on Wednesday. Um, after the election, I just sat down, and I'm like, I'm going to observe, observe a little bit, and I'm looking, a la- looking around, and just the, the despair um, that was there, and, and uh, in, uh, just on the faces of some of the people and, and within the content of their conversation. Um, and, you know, I've also been a part of conversations where there's, like, absolute joy and euphoria um, over kind of the same thing. Likely you've had one or more of these emotions this week, right? And likely you've had one or more of these conversations this week. And I think, um, I think this week we've probably exposed two different idols. Number one, the trust in a man or a woman to make everything better. The trust in a man or a woman to be our savior above Jesus Christ. And then number two, a trust in a country to be our hope, to be our promised land. We create idols out of supporting the right candidate, the right cause, and the right idea of how this country used to be, should be, or could be. When we're either overly hopeful or overly hopeless, about the events of Tuesday, we need to shine a light on our heart and see exactly where it's finding its hope. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, I'm not up here talking about morality. I'm not up here talking about choices that candidates made, things that they said, about what it's, uh, what it's like to have a leader in a position with different moral choices. That, that is a different discussion for a different day. I'm not talking about that. What, am I, what I'm talking about is this. No matter how you voted, no matter which side you went on, Donald Trump was elected the 45th president of the United States on Tuesday. And just like the previous 44 presidents, Mr. Trump is going to have absolutely zero power to change the hearts of the people of this country. I also do not see the United States anywhere in the Bible as our promised land. That it should be this or that it should be that. I do see that we should seek its welfare. 
I do see that we should seek its welfare. And in seeking its welfare, that we should love our neighbors, no matter how they look, they talk, or they act. We are to seek its welfare. However, in seeking its welfare, we're also called to be foreigners and ambassadors here. Christians, this country is not your home. This country is not your home. Your hope does not stand where you, where you are right now. Your king is not a president, and your hope is not the United States. Let's not settle. Let's not settle for idols with limited power, but put all of our hope in the one true king. Number two, we make idols out of the gifts that God has given us. So we see in verse 2 that Aaron told the Israelites to take the rings out of their ears, to basically take their jewelry off, and they're going to fashion this this calf, right? This golden calf they fashion. Um, But the question is, weren't these people slaves? Like, where did they get jewelry and different things like that? If I'm doing my math right, about 90 days before this, they were actually uh, leaving um, Egypt uh, as, as free people, but they'd been, they had been slaves for 400 years. So how on earth did they get these things? Well, uh, back in chapter 12, um, we see that, that God told the Israelites to ask the Egyptians for their gold and their silver and their jewelry. And then it says that God gave them favor with the Egyptians, and the Egyptians actually gave them their gold and their silver and their jewelry. So what they have here, everything that they have is a gift from God. God told them to ask for it, and God gave it to them. And so what they've done is they've taken this gift from God, this good thing, and fashioned it into something that they would worship. When the good things that God gives us become the thing, that's when it's a problem. We can take the good gifts of God and make those the most important thing and forget about the gift giver. We worship the gift and not the gift giver. And I wonder if, if, if you guys can relate to this, if this hits home. I know as I was reading through this, it really did with me. And one of the ways that it did was with my family. I've got an amazing wife and three wonderful kids that are truly um, a gift from God. But I'm tempted every single day to make them more than just people I love and care for, but make them the people that I find my value and my worth in. To buy into that lie that as long as everything is good with my family, as long as they're happy, healthy, godly, obedient people, I must be doing okay, right? I must be doing fine. And then what that leads me to do is kind of demand perfection. I want to make sure that we we have our kids, you know, eating the right food and uh, and being in the right school and, and everything needs to line up perfectly because I'm finding my value and my worth in my family. And what happens then is that I don't allow mistakes. I don't allow mistakes for myself. I don't allow mistakes for my family. But guess what mistakes can do? Mistakes can point to my fallenness and my need for grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when I make my family my God, I'm robbing them of grace. I'm robbing them of the gospel of Christ. I also, can I also confess that I also do this with my job? Being a pastor is truly a gift from God. And, and, and I've been honored to walk with, with many, many of you, uh, to pray with you, to encourage you, um, to, to mourn with you. Uh, but if I'm being honest, sometimes how I'm seen in this job becomes more important to me than my obedience to Christ. 
I want to be seen as competent and not admit mistakes. I want to be seen as wise and not admit that I don't know what I'm talking about most of the time, actually. (laughs) How I'm seen as a pastor becomes an idol when I'm making myself look greater than I am instead of becoming so low that Christ can be exalted. And so I wonder, City Light, what might this be for you? What good gift has God given you that you've made the thing? Is it your job? Is it your home? Is it your bank account? The neighborhood you live in or the neighborhood you want to live in? Maybe it's your ministry. Maybe it's the people that you've led to Christ. Maybe it's the fact that you can uh, memorize Bible verses really well. The scary things about good things is they become bad things when they become the thing. Let's worship the gift giver and not the gifts. Third, we make idols that do not require anything of us. The golden calf was worthless. It couldn't talk, it couldn't walk, it couldn't go into battle for the Israelites. It offered no salvation, but it also required nothing of them at all. It allowed them to be whatever they wanted to be. It had no law, no way of living. It had no purpose for their lives. It did not require anything of them. It was deaf, dumb, and mute, but it left them alone. Israel wants a God who will go out before them, who will deliver them, but they do not want the devotion to that God that comes with it. Israel wants salvation without devotion. When we want salvation from Christ but do not want him to dictate our lives, we're asking for fire insurance and not a life found in him. Sure, I'll take your grace, but don't don't tell me how to live my life. This is my life. Pastor Chris said it well last week when he said that, that many times we're okay with Christ being our Savior, but not our Lord and our leader. However, I think, I don't think Christ gives us that option. I don't think he does. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verses 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What he's saying is no one that goes to follow me and then tries to be obedient to something that was in their life is fit for the kingdom of God. When he called his disciples, what did he tell them to do? He said, drop your nets and follow me. Drop your livelihood, drop everything, and follow me. He's asking for devotion. He's asking for surrender. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. See, are we tempted to make Jesus a part of our checklist instead of allowing him to dictate what is on that checklist? Are we tempted to make the body of Christ something that we come to and consume or a people to belong to? Are we tempted to tell Christ the areas of our lives that he can be a part of instead of finding all of who we are in him? Are we tempted to take pieces of Christ that we think we like and leave the rest? Jesus does not leave room for us to be obedient to anything other than him. Idols are dangerous. They're alluring because they make shiny promises they cannot keep, and they're dangerous because there are real consequences to following idols and to idolatry. One of the beautiful things about this passage from Exodus is that we get to see much of God's character in one story. 
Israel has sinned and God is just. They have gone back on their promise to obey God's commands and there must be justice. But we also see God's faithfulness to the promises that he made. We see his mercy towards his people and a continuation of the promises that he made a long time ago. Look with me at at, at, uh, chapter 32, verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. This is where we see the justice of God poured out through his wrath. The consequences of Israel's actions is going to be death. God is ready to wipe them off the face of the earth and start all over again with Moses. This is where the warnings start to get very, very serious. When we take and make idols, we're telling God that we know better, that we have it figured out. We've got a better idea than what he has planned, what he has set up. We also see the consistency of the narrative here that, that all sin leads to death. In fact, if we, if we followed this story out, which we don't have time for this morning, we would see that, that 3,000 Israelites actually died because of, of this. Um, it was likely uh, the Israelites that were most associated with making this idol. We also see that, would see uh, that um, uh, of all the adult Israelites that left the land of Egypt, and marched towards the promised land, only a select, very, very few actually made it into the promised land, and that was because of their idolatry. It was because of their sin. The consequences are real. God's justice is real. However, in the same way that God is just, he is also merciful. Look with me at Exodus chapter 32, verses 30 to 33. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned, a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, if you will forgive their sin, they should have put a comma there. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And so I I want you to notice a couple of things here. Not only do we see God's wrath, but we see his mercy and his faithfulness to fulfill his promises. He's going to make a great nation, and he's faithful to do that. God's promises stand despite our unfaithfulness. Next, I want you to see Moses in this story and what he's doing Moses stands in the gap. God's anger is burning towards Israel, and Moses steps in for them and pleads for them on their behalf. What's happening here is God is pointing us to our need for an intercessor. God is pointing us to our need for someone to stand in the gap, for Jesus to stand in for us. Notice here, too, that Moses offers to give his life in place of Israel. He says, take me, blot me out of your book instead of taking all of the Israelites. He wants to sacrifice himself to save God's people. This is starting to sound familiar, right? But God says no. God tells Moses, no, I will blot out 
those in my book who have sinned. He tells him no because Moses is sinful himself. He's not perfect. He can't actually stand in and take the punishment for Israel. Only someone who is perfect can stand in that gap and take the punishment that we deserve for our sin, for idolatry. Paul sums this up well in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. Listen to this. He says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is the anti-idol. Everything that idols are, he is not. Everything that idols are not, he is. He's not small and powerless like our idols. He created the heavens and the earth. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. He's not a gift from God that we might wrongfully worship him. He is God. He is the gift giver. We can worship him as the good gift giver. Our idols require nothing of us because they are nothing. Christ does require something, but that something is surrender. To lose your life in him. To lose your life in him is to find life. To find Christ is to die to yourself and to find life. The answer to our idol worship is simply the Son. Just like the calf could not save Israel, our jobs, our homes, our families, and our resume cannot save us. The wrath that our idol worship deserved was poured out on the Son who stood in our place. He stood in our place so that we might never have to look to cheap idols to provide what we need, but he fulfilled everything perfectly in his death and resurrection. Idols are built on lies. They promise life and deliver death. Jesus promises that you will only find death outside of him and you will only find life in him. He's also the only one that comes through on his promises. Idols rob from you. Christ died for you. The only answer to our idol worship is, was, and always will be Jesus Christ. City Light, would we be a church that is wary of idols, that heeds the warnings that we see in Exodus here, and who relies on Christ and Christ alone as our Savior, our Lord, and our hope? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you're enough. I thank you that you show us with your power how small everything else is. God, you are one that we can trust. You are all-powerful. Would we not chase after small things? Would we not do ourselves a disservice by chasing after something that is not you? So, Lord, I pray for everyone in this room right now. God, would you expose the idols in our heart? Would you expose the small things that we've made the big things? Lord, as always, lead us to you. Lead us to you. In Jesus' name, amen.